Welcome to season four of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez, and in this show, we'll be talking to some real life experts on how to get through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and not maybe, but definitely feelings of helplessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we may be more prepared for this moment than we realize. So let's get started and see what we can relearn. Welcome to the spookiest, the scariest, the most, is that real interview on Halloween? It is October 31st, 2020. And this morning, because it is morning, we're both, I think, still wiping away some sleep from our eyes. We are speaking once again to the lovely, the amazing, the wonderful, the ever astute, I don't really know what that word means. Rebecca <laughs> Solomon. Um, so uh, Rebecca Solomon, friend, um, before I pressed record, we were joking, as you can see, and the listeners cannot, you can see my uh, office area where I'm speaking to you. And there's a partition behind me that separates this room from her office and her office, which would be my wife's office on the other side, since we both work from home, teach from home, do all things from home. Oh, God. And uh, we were joking about uh, the first school that Rebecca and I both worked at and partitions were like the thing. So this this school was made in such a way where many of the classrooms on the first floor, there were two floors and then a penthouse and um, had partition walls because they were built in a time where the idea could be that A, there wouldn't be that many students in a classroom and B, that this wall could collapse and you could literally collapse the walls and the boundaries between two subject matters or classes potentially. But then this bit us in the ass because we had hundreds, hundreds of faculty. We had thousands, thousands of students, a small city, a small town was what Los Angeles Senior High was in the early thousands. And we had to be mobile. So teachers couldn't rely on having a classroom. I know that I had a cart. And so every class, I was in a different classroom for the open period of a different teacher because we had so many students and we needed so many teachers to create smallish class sizes that we had to have a cart. And on that cart is where your posters, your books, all your supplies were and you roamed. But we had a dear friend who didn't even have that. No, he didn't have a cart. He had to share the like theater auditorium with another teacher. And Rebecca, do you want to explain what happened in the theater? How do you have two classes in a big theater? Well, at first, I just need to go back to the cart. <laughs> also had to travel. But if you think that Rebecca Solomon and Felicia Perez's carts look the same, you are... No two carts were <laughs> no ever different. Could look more different. Anyway, Felicia's was like like a traveling circus with like boxes, <laughs> but everything was properly labeled. Yeah, oh, everything was like very well organized. Mine was like I don't know, shit would like fall out as you were walking yes. down the hallway. Kids would be running after me. <laughs> Your cart was much like a grocery cart of a mom <laughs> of five, you know, like walking through Costco where everyone's like, come on, stay together, stay together. Where's your sister? You know, like these kinds of things. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Getting okay. Me. We've moved on from carts. So but what did Jason he, have? He had his, his whole class, his, so the whole theater was literally divided in half. 
And the kids didn't sit in the house, right? They sat on the stage and there was just like a big, <laughs> oh, that's right. But the ceiling was like 40 feet high. So you really had a great acoustics. It was like nine feet high, ostensibly dividing an English and a math classroom. And you had rolling whiteboards. I mean, it was just, it was a freaking disaster. And that wasn't the only classroom that was divided like that. I, th I was thinking about it in part because of trying to conceptualize how do you return to school in a pandemic? How do you, how do you teach in CDC required pods of 12 to maybe maximum 16 when we have class sizes of 41? right? Math. You know what I blame here? The thing is that this requires math. You have to, this is algebra, babe. Like this is, this is a square footage with how much square footage a student takes up versus how much square footage does the classroom give you. And then you've got to figure out, you know, the, the distance required and then how much, how much physical room does a teacher need? So you got to put that in there too. I mean, there's some drawing. I feel like this is an architecture, like algebra. This is a, this is an SAT problem. Like if you're listening in the future, please make problems related to the COVID pandemic. No, don't do that. Talk about triggering, but that's, that's where we're at. But what's interesting is that we started giggling, talking about partitions and carts. And we were initially giggling about the partitions in a classroom that really aren't a classroom because we were talking about how you and I were the, uh, you know, the shop stewards, the union representation at that time. And we fought for that partition in the theater to exist. And it was a win, you know, it was like, how can we have two classrooms when no one can hear us and we're just in one big room and like, we need a partition and we need the partition yesterday. When is it coming? When is it coming? And that, that was the win. So what I, what I, really find fascinating about how we started is that I want to preview for you. And I know this is hard, but in a couple of years, we will laugh about this moment. I promise you in a couple of years, oh, the face, the face that was just made is the saddest face ever. In a couple of years, we will laugh at, do you remember when you were in that staff meeting and one of your coworkers was dressed up like a mime? <laughs> And it wasn't Halloween yet. <laughs> so like, I just think, I just think that this is, this is packed with a lot of gems for humor that right now just like feel really hard because um, they are, but I promise you there will be some levity, levity to this at some point. And we've been here before, right? So the, the podcast is called Been There, Done That. We've been in these kinds of precarious situations where we had to think about really at the essence, at the core, what is the littlest amount that I need in order to be able to do my job? Now, granted, no one should be thinking about that as the lens that they look through their job every single day, regardless of there being a pandemic or not. What's the least that I need to effectively do my job without hurting anybody? That is not, that is not, I mean, there's whole commercials about this, you know, but anyways, how's it going? How is school? I've heard of people returning. You're in the second largest school district in the country. Have students returned? Have you talked about returning? Well, that, I mean, that, that's literally why I was thinking about this partition because uh, it wasn't just seeing the beauty of your partition that caused me to think about it. It was this idea of like, okay, how do we split 42 kid classrooms into 
multiple classes of 12 and then do that five times. Does that mean I'm teaching, you know, literally 25 classes? Like, how do you do that? How do you keep the kids away from each other? Well, do you partition rooms? Well, that, that doesn't, you know, partitioning rooms. There's an idea that the teachers would rove like in other countries around the world, right? The kids stay in one room and the teachers change rooms, right? So the question of roving absolutely has come up. So again, those carts, um, because what you have to cut down in order for kids to be safe and adults to be safe is how, is, is like bubbles, right? Like we see, saw it in the NBA, we've seen it in the more or less in Major League Baseball, right? Like you see it in the sports. Uh, I was just reading about the uh, National Women's Soccer League. You know, all the sports are bubbling and the NBA did it so well that nobody ever got sick, you know? Um, but it was a bubbling that was beyond just staying in one classroom and your teachers move. It, was, it would be you live at the school. Your Absolutely. dorms are at the school. You live at the school. No one has to worry about you um, outside of the school. And that's well, a kind of bubble that I don't, I don't know that LAUSD can do. Well, and none of us can do what New Zealand does. We can't bubble on an island. I mean, like, and that's what, you know, the countries that are successful are really able to like. Yeah. So what are the successful countries right now? New Zealand, Australia, literally countries on an island. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think there's just uh I think the other thing that was the, the partition story and our feeling of like, I mean, to, to be fair to us, we did not feel victorious. We did feel like we had done the best. Hey, hey, you know, you listen to me. A small win is a win. Okay. And, and we were working for improving. We were improving people's working conditions. Now, was it the improvement of all improvements? No. Was it a improvement from the day before? Yes, Solomon, yes. And if I had to call up Jason right now <laughs> and ask him if that made a difference, I won't do it because I'm afraid he'll say, no, it didn't make a difference. <laughs> but it might not have made a difference to him, but it made a difference for us as, as, as the leaders who we were trying. <laughs> we felt like we at least tried everything. But, but I, think, I think what was making me was like, feeling resonant with how we are right now is how much, how much we were sort of, how much we were compelled by circumstances to feel like we had to focus on that room and that partition and those two adults, right? And that, and those kids who are, who are gonna be entering that room versus, and I think that's the problem now. It's like when people are thinking about hybrid, right? Which is the, the language that people are using for something in between full online or what we're calling crisis learning and full everybody, all students and educators back to school, right? So what's, what's something in the middle, right? And it's a pretty big- Wait a minute, wait a minute. Huh? Y'all are calling this current time of having to teach online crisis learning. Oh yeah, hell no, it's not distance learning. It's freaking crisis learning. You gotta relabel that, that nonsense, yeah. Wow, okay, okay. I, I like it. I just hadn't, I hadn't heard that not being in this, in this space, you know, uh, as deeply as I would like to, this is, um, this is a critical reframing of, of the situation. Yeah. It was a super conscious choice when we, we negotiated a, an agreement, our, the teachers union in Los Angeles negotiated an agreement in, uh, April and we, we called it crisis learning. We're like, look, that is how we're going to bargain it. That is what it's going to be called in the district. You know, they still call it distance learning, but we call it crisis learning and it's really stuck. And I think it's really helpful to people. 
It um, is. I, I think, I think one of the things, um, just before you go on, that's super important about this time that we seem to be, you know, we're almost a year into it. And so when things kind of last for a little bit, we tend to then start to, you know, divide up how we really start to look at it. Our perspective really starts to get a little bit more grounded. And I think what happens is we start to use language that makes it seem like everything's fine because we want people to feel like everything's fine and quote, not freak out. But in doing so, we lessen really grasping and understanding what is going on. And historically speaking, as both of us being history teachers and historians in ways, right? Like it's important that we are actually calling this and referring to this and describing this time in a way that accurately depicts what's going on. So this isn't distance learning because distance learning already existed before the pandemic and it didn't look like this. It had different training, it had different support, it had different pay and mechanisms. This is crisis learning. And I really appreciate um, the union and UTLA um, and members and leaders really you know, pushing that. I'm sorry, go on. No, no, I think, I think that's the, the you know, it's also, it's as true around this election as it is around crisis learning. There's just, people want their systems to be, I don't know if they're using this language with themselves, but people want their systems to be regulated. They want to feel like calm or happy, you know? And, and so all kinds of trauma-informed responses about how to do that from disassociation to, you know, downright ignoring things or pretending that things are different than they are. Um, Two, I think much healthier responses, which about building community, about sort of like understanding that you, and this is what I've been trying to do is like, I don't, I don't think you have to, I don't think you have to like reject let me say this differently. I don't think you have to like be in a constant state of anxiety to be accepting of how things are. Right. And I think, I think people feel like that's the choice, right? The choice is like you either ignore it and you pretend like it's not happening. You just try and be, get into normalcy or you have to crank your system up to an 11 all the time and be shouting all the time. Or like somehow it's not, it's not real enough. And I'm like, okay, what is a kind of a, you know, we both also play basketball, right? Like how, what is like a, a, a ready stance, right? Your knees are bent, you're prepared. You know, they're going to run the court, right? You know, they're taller than you, but you, you're ready. You got your, you're in your defensive position, but you're also ready to steal the ball, right? You're ready to transition from defense to offense. Like I, I feel like that, that is the psychological state and the physical state that that I am striving for, and I want to see if I can create spaces that help people do that. You know, like have your information does not have to take your anxiety to a twenty-five. You're in family, right? We're together on this. We can defend each other. We can demand democracy. We can be present for each other. We can understand that crisis learning is nothing like the kind of education our students deserve. And we don't have to work 20, 20 hours a day. Like, how do we hold both of those things um, without it feeling like we're lying to ourselves, we're betraying our students, 
you know, that our system, that we can't, you know, sleep at night. I don't know. So just thinking about all of that, it really, like it turns you to the future because when I think about hybrid learning, you know, everybody's obsessed with schedules. What's the bell schedule? You know, how do you, how do you have kids at home and kids be, because you can't like at LA High, you can't have 4,000 kids on the campus at any one time. Right. At our school, we have, we have 5,000 kids in six different schools, right? You can't have all those kids be on the campus at the same time, especially in the, in the schools like you taught at where there were literally different schools in the same hallway. It's just, it's going to be very difficult. So people start to really obsess about how do I keep this pot away from this pot? What's the time? How do we give the minutes? And I'm like, pause, pause. Because what you're not thinking about is, is you're focusing on this same, like the partition in the, in, the, in the theater, right? You're focusing on the partition, not the context that needs to actually be dealt with, right? We need to make sure that parents have access to resources, right? They have access to childcare because two day a week school is no better for them than a zero day a week school if they don't have access to childcare. For a teacher, right? who is teaching both remotely and in person, the burden of doing that is gonna exponentially increase their workload without any resources for their own children, for example, right? And we know that this is all falling through the worst kind of equity wormhole, right? That like black and brown students, right? That working class students are like so profoundly negatively affected by this. And so to bargain schedules as if our biggest worry is actually to keep 12 kids away from another 12 kids. We're in the middle of an economic crisis and a freaking pandemic, right? It's just like, it's like, it's actually missing what we really need to fight for. And I'm not saying back in 19, in 2005, we could have like won a class size reduction, right? But like, and I'm not saying we didn't fight for that as well, right? Because that was actually the cause of, of our situation, right? Is that we compel the class size reduction and therefore we had to have more classroom. But anyway. Well, here's, here's what's super interesting that I was thinking about as you were talking. You are correct. We, as in union leadership and teachers wanting smaller class sizes, compelled in us into a situation where now we have carts and we have to move and we have classrooms in a theater because we wanted our classes to be a certain size. I get that. And that, that shouldn't have been a, a choice. You know, the lesser of two evils. Well, if you want smaller class sizes, you're going to have to make up classrooms in like ridiculous places. Like that is not you know, where we should be, where anyone should be, period. You know, like, oh, you want to have a break? Fine, you have a break in the middle of, you know, when you're hanging from that pole because that's your job that you do and it takes too long to get down from the pole. Like the lesser of two evils is not what any of us want. And and I think that's what we're feeling in every election virtually for presidents, right? The lesser of two evils. Who's the best of the worst or the least of the worst, right? Like no one's really ever like, this is the person I want to be around. And some people might say, whoa, 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 that's how I felt about Obama. But did you the second term? So like there's all these different kinds of things, you know, going on. What I want to say is listening to you, though, I was reminded, ah, we both started teaching at a year round school because it didn't have the physical capacity to hold everyone. So is it possible that all schools right now can get on a year round schedule such that you're four months on and two months off, longer than two days a week in versus two days a week off. You know what I'm saying? Like, is there a way that it could just be deeper than just weekly? 
can it become more like a year round schedule? Cause you really need to shrink down the number of students in a classroom. But even just saying that, I realized that I am creating a lesser of two evil situation because that wasn't good either. So what I wanna bring you to is backwards planning. Oh, the phrase of teachers everywhere, backwards planning. And what is backwards planning? Well, where do you wanna go? What's the end goal? And then you plan backwards from there. We had this conversation a few interviews ago and now it's been months since then. And what I wanna know is the same question. What would you say is the goal of students going to school right now? What is it that we want them to be able to do? What are we trying to teach them? You mean right now in crisis learning? I, I believe so. Like, what are the crisis learning standards? Because here's the thing. We just talked about both of us, you know, identifying as, as women, um, being in a job that is predominantly um, and historically been held by women. And in this job as well, we have, uh, and in this crisis right now, we have more women than men who are having to work triple, quadruple because we're at home caregivers and working in these jobs that are tending to be caregiving jobs, right? So the the amount of exhaustion on women in particular and parents overall in general is insane. You spoke earlier in an interview of, of, a, of a student who, you know, whose mom was like, uh, this student can't be in class all the time because they're my child and I teach and they're my childcare for our younger child at home. Right. Like, so it's not like kids are just hanging out, you know, picking their noses. Some of them are, um, but many are actually working at home. So what we're teaching young girls right now in crisis learning is that this is, this is your plight for the rest of your life. You won't be able to go to school without taking care of your parents and taking care of your siblings and taking care of other people. You will never come first. And so I'm wondering, what would you, if we could have started all over again, if, the, if, if we heard of COVID and the crisis yesterday and we were still in the classrooms and we were still at work yesterday, what, what, what difference, what changes would we have to make if we could have done things differently just in the last few months? And if not that, if that's too challenging of a question or just not one that you're interested in, then what is the backwards planning? What is the goal? What are the crisis learning standards? Well, I mean... You know, it's sort of interesting because I've also, yeah. Okay, so your question. Um, I mean, I think, I think in some ways it's no different, right? I mean, like the things that we used to, we tried to teach and you probably still teach it. I don't know your new classroom, but I'm, I have no doubt in my mind that those principles are the same of like, you have agency. You are an actor in this as it plays out, you are not a passive receptor of other people's news, history, um, you know, 
expectations, like you have a role to play and you can be part of a collective transformation. Like, I think, I think those pieces are the same. I think in this moment, it just is exposing how little educators understand about socio-emotional health. I, I just think we don't know how to, we, we, know, we care for our students by like giving them feedback on their assignments, by like, you know, giving extra tutoring hours, by, so, and some teachers are able to support students in, in crises, right? Like, I know that you were amazing at supporting your students when they were having emotional hard times, family hard times, um, you know, like that is a gift that many, many teachers are able to give, but I'm talking about the kind of socio-emotional support that gives students tools on the regular when they are not in crisis to be able to engage with their family, right? Like, cause now kids, you know, queer kids are stuck at home with homophobic parents and they can't leave, you know, like what are the tools? I'm not saying every kid has homophobic parents, but, but like, you know, like what are the tools that we are offering students for their mental well-being every day as integrated into the curriculum? What are the tools that we're giving students every day to see the struggle for social justice as an arc, not as a series of crisis points that they have to respond to, you know, like, and, and I feel like what you're also seeing across the country is like what you were saying about math. It's like kids grow into adults who then don't have the skills to handle the world. And I, and I don't mean that in a way that's disrespectful to all the ways that they do cope and they do engage, but their sense of like politics doesn't belong to us. The running of the world doesn't belong to us, right? The, all, what belongs to me, my lane is handling shit for myself and my family, right? That that's my lane. The individual success is my lane. That is something that we teachers created. That is something that schools built a structure and that teachers then reinforced. Unless we did the, it's like anti-racism. You can't just like stop walking on a treadmill. You have to actively run in the other direction. And if we are not doing that in schools, we are contributing to the kind of individualistic response that I think has characterized the pandemic and economic crises since at least this century for sure. No? Yikes. Well, you know what? You know what struck me as you were talking is like, this is doable. This is totally doable. So, so, so if in the past our goal was to, you know, as you said, and I still believe that that is what I'm still attempting to Absolutely. do in, yeah. in the, in the upper classes, yeah. uh, you know, you, you've got agency, you know, be critical of what you're consuming, know that you have the power and capacity to change things. These are real life. You can use these skills right now, sort of scenario. But to your point about, you know, um, and I remember this when, when we taught together, especially in the early years, when, um, I was like, it seems like we are different kinds of teachers. Like I, I stay after school on a Friday and play pickup basketball with a bunch of boys who don't have a dad and I buy us pizza or on a Thursday, I go to Starbucks and play, you know, Scrabble with a bunch of boys and buy us coffee and, and Burger King and hang out. And I, I had like a group of boys that mm -hmm. I would hang out with who didn't have dads, who had moms. And I was like the, I was like the most familiar mom, dad they could have. And we would talk about things and just sort of hang out. Mom, and dad, <laughs> mom, dad, I was mom, dad. And, um, 
And I was like, Solomon, I noticed you, you're not a mom dad to anybody. Like, what's going on? And you're like, yeah, no, I, that is not my lane. That lane scares me. And to be frank, it scared me too. Like, there's a reason why I hung out with a bunch of boys and not a bunch of girls. You know, like, I think if 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 the openly out, and at that time, one of the only ones, if the, the only openly out lesbian teacher who's a butch dyke was hanging out with a bunch of girls. I think that would have raised a lot more suspicions than me playing basketball and trying to get young men to improve their vocabulary and spelling skills with Scrabble, right? So um, I get that, but I gotta say that being that teacher isn't necessarily the answer either because me being that teacher was exhausting and I didn't have support and I didn't have training on how to provide emotional support for these young people. I was figuring myself out and my emotional support for myself on my own. Um, I burnt out, I think on teaching a lot more and I felt such incredible guilt at telling students, no, I can't talk to you. No, you can't have lunch in my room. The boundaries, setting up those boundaries was so incredibly challenging and if you recall, I mean, I think I should have gotten a toaster at LA High because I think I had like the most calls to social services because I became the teacher that kids felt comfortable telling their worst life situations to because I would do something about it because I was compelled legally to you know call social services. And, and those phone calls, like you had to be in the room and hear the student tell the most horrific things as somebody on the phone is listening and asking ridiculous follow-up questions, like that was hard. I, I, I can't even, I don't even know if you know, this would be like a quiz. Do you know how many times Felicia Perez was sent home from work because of an emotional crisis that she had to handle that then triggered her? Uh, you know, like it was, it was intense. And so I, I agree with you. I think the, how do you manage life right now and in any situation that might be reminiscent of this moment right now is what our students and young people need, but it's also what the teachers need. And I don't know that you can teach this without knowing it yourself. And so I, I fear that, um, that would only, you know, that that's why we're like, no, we're teaching math. No, we're teaching science and we're teaching it the same old way. Oh, because, yeah. because this is what I can control and this is what oh. I can do. And this makes me feel like I accomplished something. And oh. so, it, you know, like it's a rough spot. And who wants to be the person who holds the container for the most astronomically sad and frustrating and uncontrollable feelings? But essentially what you're saying is that we need to look at education in a particular way such that teachers right now are having to learn what the hell is this mindfulness thing? What does it mean to be a turtle? And how do we get our students to understand that all of these feelings that you're having, number one, all feelings last roughly 20 minutes. And so they'll peak and then they'll come down. So if you're having like a really intense feeling, set a timer, 20 minutes, and see what you can do in that 20 minutes time to just make a space for it. You know, let yourself cry for 20 minutes, listen to sad songs for 20 minutes, go for a walk for 20 minutes. And when the alarm goes off, know that like, oh, do I feel better? Yeah, that's weird. I guess it's maybe true. You know, like how do we create a space in which the feelings that we're having right now aren't to be shunned, aren't to be put away or done something with? 
the only thing to do is to make space in our lives for having them and then making sure that as we have them, nobody else, including ourselves, is hurt. And in 20 minutes, I'll have a different feeling. It might be the same one again, but at least the intensity won't be the same as it was just a few minutes ago. But like, I just learned that shit like in the last couple of years when I wasn't teaching. And I wouldn't at all in any way, shape or form think that I was prepared or skilled enough to be able to teach it to another person. But it's like, you're right. It's like, I mean, we just had a teacher at Miguel Contreras school right down the street from us committed suicide. Get out. Yeah. And, you know, obviously nobody knows, but a lot of the teachers at the school were saying he was getting a lot of pressure relating to test scores, and crisis, crisis learning, you know, and who knows, obviously no one can know, but it, it was just really making me, you know, we were just really talking about like, how do you, we, we don't know, like you said, we don't, we, we are the products of the same system that we are deeply enmeshed in. And we have very few skills to deal with all of these things. Um, and those of us that have a few feel compelled to run ourselves dry in, in, in using them for our students. Um, you know, one of the early things that you told me, Solomon, as you were my unofficial mentor teacher, because I did have a mentor teacher, if you recall, and she came once to sign off her paper that she was my mentor teacher and got the money and then skipped town. And I was like, um, so I feel like I wasn't mentored. Solomon, my friend who helped me get this job, can you maybe come to my classroom and visit it and actually give me some feedback and do that mentor thing? There were many things that you mentored me on that first year. And uh, I think we've talked about several of them maybe in our earlier interviews, but one of them that really stood out, um, I asked you, I said, what if they ask me, they being the students, what if they ask me a question and I don't know the answer? And you were like, good question. What do you think? And I was like, I should tell them something close to an answer. <laughs> and, and you were like, no, you should tell them that you don't know. And I was like, you know how many things I don't know? Most. Like, they're going to ask me all kinds of stuff. And I'm going to be like, I don't know. I don't know. How am I going to get any respect in the classroom as the teacher who don't know nothing? And, and you were like, but it's honest. Like you, you're teaching them to be honest. I think, you know, and I, and I go out and I talk to teachers about like, you teach what you teach and how you teach more importantly, like who you are, you teach who you are. And I think we miss that. And in fact, I think that in many, if not most credential programs, you're not taught to really reflect on who you are and therefore what are you bringing into the classroom by just being you. You know, like, so if you're an openly out teacher, you're bringing into the classroom that it's totally okay to be you and to be a teacher and to be out. If you're a, a black male straight, you know, teacher, you're teaching that straight black men can be caregiving, amazing container holding individuals and adults who are knowledgeable and can teach you something, right? Like there's so many different things that you are breaking down and challenging when you are your full self as a teacher, right? And so 
that lesson from you about if you don't know the answer, just say you don't know it teaches young people that teachers are just guides and facilitators to learning and that they, in fact, might be learning along with you. And they're teaching you how to learn. They're teaching you how to struggle. They're teaching you how to inquire about something and to create questions. And they're also teaching you when somebody asks you a question that you don't know, what do you do? I don't know. Let's find out. And I think that, I don't know. I mean, I remember the last time, you know, we, I was in crisis as a teacher and the, just the whole curriculum went out the door and I, you know, and you start from zero and it's a lot more work, but it, it, it makes it actually match the moment. What have, what is your classrooms? What about you? Okay. We've been talking about this bigger, like school learning, but let's talk about your classroom, your students. How's it going? How do you feel in the classroom these days? And, and, you know, is there any silver lining? Is there anything right now that you're like, Ooh, this gives me life at work right now? Well, one, I'm just like really appreciating like this reminder of like, um, like, you know, Frary talks about, you know, you're a teacher learner or teacher student and a student teacher, like you're, you're all of those things. And I, I just think that's a really powerful thing. And, you know, like uh, a lot of folks have been reading Bettina Love's book, uh, We Want to Do More Than Survive, which is about abolitionist curriculum. And Dr. Love really talks about how like so many teachers are young, white, idealistic women, right? Like so many teachers and they are teaching black and brown youth, right? And they don't, they literally don't think about, they are taught not to think about race, right? They are products of whatever white school system they came through. And all of it is just like, it's like, they don't know who they are, right? Because white people are like some of the most alienated from themselves, right? they are protected from under certain kinds of understandings that might really help them engage in empathy, right. With, with their students. Um, and let alone be, and, and that sort of like, you know, everything is very abstract. I don't know. So it's just really making me think about like, okay, we don't have tools, right. Vast number, vast, we don't have socio-emotional tools as a country, as a world, right? We are not taught those things. Right. It's not just the teaching profession. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus Christ, no. It, and then on top of that, you're looking at a workforce that is, is often very different in its experiences of the world. It's filtered, right. how, how it experiences the world, then the students they teach. So what skills they are imparting Frankly, we're saying wouldn't be useful even to middle-class white kids, right? Because we're saying what well, they also need these socio-emotional skills, but it's even more alienating if your teacher is like, has no idea what's going on with your family and your life and doesn't bother to figure it out, right? Because obviously the curiosity that you're saying we all need to cultivate, right? Could go some distance and the right. humility of saying, I have no idea. Tell me more, tell me more. Let me bring your experience into the classroom and center it, right? versus like whatever reading curriculum we're dealing with. So I think in my classroom, you know, it's just so difficult to like, 
both honor that students are struggling in the sense of like, they don't want to put their cameras on. They may not feel comfortable to speak, right? They may be, you know, and sometimes when they get all excited and they do try and come off mute, you can't hear shit. It's like a fucking insanely loud, their Wi-Fi can't handle it, you know? So even when they're attempting to express themselves, it's like very difficult. So kind of getting a flavor of what they want and what they need and where they're at is complicated. Um, but I think, I think we're just trying to, I'm really focusing on vision in my classes, trying to really focus on vision and legacy. And so in my senior class, we're really talking about what is your, there was a process in Los Angeles led by um, Black Lives Matter to create a people's budget for the city of Los Angeles to counter a, a budget that has more than 50% going towards law enforcement, the general fund, and to counter that with a people-centered budget. And so we talked, we spent a, the first half of the semester really talking about like what's going on in our communities, our neighborhoods. And then the final project was to create a, a vision for a youth budget for Los Angeles. Like really just put out your vision. Like, what do you want? We looked at Trump and Biden. We looked at other people's visions. And then I said, take what you want throw out what you don't and generate a vision together with your team and then share it with us so we can hear and we can vision too. And so that's kind of, that's literally like where we're at right now. It's like, I don't want to know what you think. I don't want you to just analyze other people. I want you to put forward what you want in the universe. And then with my ninth graders, we're really trying to like think about legacy, right? To think about how do we correct the historical record and how do we look at Los Angeles with different eyes and to see the layers of history and trauma that we stand on and think about then the future as well, you know? Um, so, so I think history, so legacy and vision, I think are where I'm trying to go in my classes to help kids have a back and a front, you know? But you, you know what's interesting, A, I have never appreciated your teaching philosophy and pedagogy <laughs> and messy cart more than I do right now. Because the kind of teacher I am and was then in the classroom was, here's the agenda, here's the schedule, this is what we're doing, we have 10 minutes of fun, we have 10 minutes of not so much fun, then we have 15 minutes of maybe less fun, and these are the things that we're going to do. Like, it was like clockwork. Basically, I was a theater director, and I was like, places, everyone, places. Like, if we moved our desks, I had tape on the ground, like striking tape on a theater, on a stage. Like, this is where the seats go, the desks go when you're done, right? Like, everything was on... So the, you know, that cart was very organized, oh, yeah. but, it, but, and you would come into my class and be like, what are they doing? Be like, they're doing their work. Can I help you? Like, whereas I would go into your classroom and I'd be like, where is Rebecca Solomon? Where's your teacher? I don't know. She was over there. And then I'd go over there. Um, it was, is Miss Solomon here? No, she was over there. It was like having to find where's Waldo because you were constantly in the middle of like hearing or listening in the most excited, animated way to someone's like simple and not very relevant point, <laughs> an idea and like 
that that is the kind of educator that we need right now. The ones who say, I don't know what we're doing today. What are you doing today? I have thoughts about where I'd like us to go. What do you need? Versus here's the agenda, people. We're going here whether you'd like it or not. You know, like and and I couldn't ever be your version of a teacher. Because that version of just holding a container requires a flexibility, a trust, a confidence that I just didn't have. And I don't, I don't know that, that all of us have that sort of ability to like, it's going to be what it is and I'm going to be okay with whatever that is. And I don't know if it's because you're, you know, uh, the, you know, white lady and I'm the bald gender queer, you know, brown person and all eyes are on me just waiting for me to fuck up. So I have to be like amazing and as best as I can be and show that I can do it your way because doing it my way might cause ruffling of all the feathers, right? Like regardless, I have never appreciated the confidence and the passion to really just be a container holder for learning the way that that you ground your teaching in. And listening to you talk about vision and legacy, that vision part is just bombastic. And I hope that you take the idea of budgeting outside of money because we budget so much more as we're talking about like the type of people who go into teaching and all the different emotional factors of this crisis. We budget our emotions. We budget our time. We are budgeting our, our um, bodies. You know, like we are saying, I'm going to do this with my body for the next 15 minutes. I'm going to put my attention over here for the next five hours. You know, like I think there's more to just money. There's other things that we consume and that we purchase. And there's other ways in which we have. We're rich. We're rich with feelings. We're rich with time. We are we are unill with passion. You know, like there are other things that we have that we also need to think about. How do I budget these other things that I do absolutely have right now? And when you talk about the idea of legacy, oh, legacy is so interesting because it's actually an idea and a process and a learned skill that usually doesn't happen until you're closer to the end of life. And the idea of what are you going to leave behind? So we are fast forwarding these young people's lives to think about what are you going to leave behind right now? Because what we're learning in this moment is that we are living in somebody else's legacy. We are currently right now reaping what somebody else sowed and died and left us this. This mess is on the shoulders of the legacy of many other budgets, not just financial, but what people gave their time and attention and trust and emotion over to. And so I've been reading this book lately called Mindful Grieving. And it's super interesting because it talks about suffering and loss and that there's different kinds of losses, that there's the sudden loss when someone just like suddenly dumps you, leaves you, has to move away, a friendship ends, or someone, you know, is no longer here because they died. And then there's the gradual anticipated loss. And that one really sucks. And that one you just know is coming. And that one's hard because you're living and you're in it while you also are leaving it and it's going away at the same time. And in that book, they talk so much about legacy. What will then be your legacy? Because what I think is happening right now 
is that we are in the middle of a collective planetary grieving process. And we're all grieving differently. And some of us in absolute denial that anything is gone. So I'm a recovering Catholic. When somebody passes away, and Mexican, right? So when somebody passes away, there's a very big gathering, bigger than anything in their entire lives is the day that they died. Huge funerals. In fact, you've been to some of my family funerals, hundreds of people. Then you go to the cemetery and there's more pain and grief and sharing emotions at that time. You see, when you go to these funerals, you see the most stoic, the most powerful, the strongest person in your family crumbled. Just not, not even like a piece of paper, just like a wet napkin. And you see that and you see them go through this pain and it forces you to go through some pain. There's a whole process, right? And then there's a whole tombstone and then we are at Halloween. So tomorrow is All Souls Day. And then the next day is All Saints Day and Dia de los Muertos. And the idea being that if you don't keep in mind these folks who have passed, these elements in your life that have passed, if you don't keep reminders of them around, they will go away. And so I'm wondering how much of right now can we be teaching each other and learning with our students and, you know, learning from them and them learning from us how to grieve and how to accept and be okay, or actually not accept. How do you just make room for feelings of loss? And how do we really acknowledge what we've lost and what we fear we're going to lose? And therefore, then, how do we make an adequate budget, knowing that there's going to be more losses and there are some things that we've lost? How do we make the budget for the vision of what we think is coming? And again, not a budget that's just grounded in money, but a budget that's grounded in all the other things that the city, the state, the government, our families and ourselves need and may not be able to provide. And so I feel like this is, this is so much bigger. And we don't tend to do well at grieving. We don't tend to do well at loss. Everything that doesn't feel like the way we want to feel, like pain. Like we're, we're just, we're, we're programmed to believe that pain is bad and it should be avoided at all costs. When pain is inevitable. And what I really learned from this book that I loved, that I want to just end with this and then hear what your thoughts are, is that the author is this like Buddhist monk and he talks about how grief is grounded in love that you cannot really grieve something. And you don't actually feel such intense loss and suffering of something unless you actually really loved it. If you didn't love it when it's no longer there, you're not really feeling the sense of loss and you're not really suffering and so it turns out that maybe for all these years that young people have been telling us that they hate school and that they hate having to go to school, it's quite possible that maybe the institution isn't something that has gained a lot of respect, but what happens in a classroom, what happens in school, what happens amongst their peers and with some teachers might be the thing that we all love the most which is that love of being seen, that love of being remembered. Because my favorite part of a teacher was noticing somebody's haircut, <laughs> was noticing, noticing somebody's outfit, 
noticing a new backpack, noticing a new friend, noticing a new smile, noticing the development of a human being's confidence and catalog of feelings, which included at some point pride and self-worth. And I, I just wonder, what are your thoughts on the idea of like grief and loss and collectively sort of leaning into that as well as grief and suffering and loss being only as intense as the actual love that we had for that? What do you think? Oh, well, of course I'm moved. You know, I think, I think it's true. And, you know, I was, my closest, you know, my mother-in-law passed away in April, you know, and thinking about how on Dia de los Muertos we can do something and then sort of thinking about how expansive. And once you start thinking about one pocket of grief, you start to, it doesn't, it's not contained. Do you right. know what I'm saying? Like you start to feel grief in sort of a, a broader way. You start to. Well, you know why? I forgot to tell you this. This oh. was also in the book and it oh. was illuminating. It was the most brilliant thing I read. I'm so oh. sorry. This is the last thing I have to oh. tell you this. It turns out when you have one feeling of loss, like it's a new feeling of loss. Like let's say right now something happens. And you're like, no, like today, Sean Connery died 90 years old. You're like, Sean Connery died. You know what happens when you have that one feeling of loss? it tugs on the string of all the other previous losses. That's why when you lose something and you start to suffer, you're like, not again. Why is it always me? Why is this happening? Because you automatically start to think of all the other ones. So as soon as you have one loss, it just brings up everything else. It's totally connected. So go, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly that. That's what I was gonna say. Um, but I think <laughs> the thing about it is, is the thing, the thing that I think has to be actively countered is that like, if grief is rooted in love, what you, what people, this loops back to our other conversation about people lacking the tools to engage socio-emotionally. It's like, people don't wanna feel that. Right? They mm. don't wanna feel that. And so what they do is they, they cut themselves off from grief, but then they're also cutting themselves off from love. And I think, what the mind the mindfulness teaching about love is that the more you have the more exists right mm -hmm. and so i think there's something about how do we cultivate in this moment of grief and fear a more expansive loving right because our only way out is through and our only way really out is to develop a compassionate community that is able to both grieve and love together much more broadly you know, like we got into this because we do not take care of each other. We got into this because we do not defend each other. We are in this moment in history because we do not caretake our planet, our people, right? The most, the most oppressed among us, like that is, that is why we are here. And so to me, how do you use a moment of grief, of collective grief to cultivate more love, right? To build, <clears throat> to build more love between people when the system is going to push us apart is going to push us to be more fearful of each other to stand to stand away from each other literally and figuratively right um and so i guess i guess that to me is the challenge and then as a teacher as teachers right how do we cultivate that what what is the what is the what are the standards for for love can i ask you a question 
What is the point of sitting Shiva? I mean, it's the equivalent of a Mexican funeral, right? It's like, let's all sit in a room, eat a lot of food, and like, just literally be together for eight days. Just but be see, it's eight days. Yeah. You just sit in the house. People come over. They bring you deviled eggs. Ooh, those deviled eggs, so good. Uh, you definitely have some schmears. You have a nice deli plate waiting for people. Bring, people bring over a lot of food. You don't have any mirrors. You got to cover all the mirrors because it's not about you. It's about the connection that you have with the people who come over. You got to rip a little bit of your clothes because it's not about vanity. It's not about you. It's about the relationship and connection you have with people. What? Yeah. For eight days, you just are forced to connect with people in grief? Yeah. What happens after the eight days? Have you ever sat Shiva? Uh, I have been part of my family's doing so, but I haven't been the, the one who was holding the Shiva at my house, for example. Um, and after that, you, well, you hold the funeral right away, right? In Jewish tradition, you bury the person right away. So you're sitting Shiva essentially after you've lower the person in the ground. And then in tradition, you don't raise the tombstone for a whole year. So then everybody has to come back a year later to put the stone on, on, the, on the grave. And then every year after that, you light a candle on the anniversary of that person's death to remember, to come together. And then if, you, if you're a person who goes to synagogue, you get to stand up at the services closest to the date and you get to say that person's name. That person is then remembered forever in the community, in the family. Um, and then every time you go to the graveyard, you put, you leave a stone, like a little rock on the, on the gravestone to, to, to say, I was here. We remember you. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> <laughs> If that doesn't make you want to be Jewish, I don't know what would. Um, <laughs> we Catholics took all the like not so great parts and just like ditched all the like really amazing parts. Um, that was beautiful. And I, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like, how do we intentionally, deliberately force community into a space that so needs it but doesn't want it because who wants to run to suffering who wants to run to absolute feelings of pain and hopelessness and I fear that our ability to have so many ways to avoid those feelings mm. is going to be the biggest and most harmful legacy that we could potentially be leaving behind for later generations to be like, I have no idea what to do with this amount of pain, but to run mm. because no one has taught me how to create space to create a container and a time period for which this pain can happen and be okay and to not be alone with it, you know? And 
I think one of the biggest issues that is challenging us right now with being able to do that is in order to sit Shiva, like that, that requires a lot of respect and support and financial ability to, you know, not go to work and be respected that you're not going to go to work and you're not going to do these things. Like, will the school even, you know, support a classroom where we're going to talk about grieving and loss and we're going to mark, you know, loss and we're going to learn how to deal with that. You know, like right now it's like, yeah, sure. Whatever it takes to keep the kids coming to class, you know, but like, how do we actually say, we've been thinking about it. This is what we know is needed. Let's go with that. And, and how challenging it must be right now to be a young person where the adults don't really know what to do either. And you don't really know how you're feeling. You haven't learned words to even describe all the, all the feelings that we even have. And so you constantly have adults asking young people, so how are you feeling? And you're like, I don't know, because I only really know about three feelings. I don't really know about how to even describe the other ones. And that's all we do with young people. How are you feeling and what do you need? I don't know. And I don't know. And then we don't share how we are because we're supposed to be stoic and have all the answers and we're there for you. So this is about you. It's not about me, but it's about all of us. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, go ahead. I was no. going to say, it's Halloween. What are you doing? <laughs> well, I just to say one th- quick thing. I mean, I think there's so much evidence that socio-emotional learning can be curricular. There's just like so much there. And yet I'm still getting trainings on, I don't know, sentence stems. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, guys. Guys. Here's a great new tool to make sure that when students turn in papers, it's not plagiarized. Uh, that's an old tool, and I learned about it in 2003 at LAI. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we're going to try and do a COVID-safe movie screening on this plot of land that we got in Lincoln Heights. So we made a big three pallets glued together, you know, uh, whatever together. And I uh, invited some people from the neighborhood, put little pumpkins six feet apart. If you want to come by and watch a movie, try and, you know, people can't uh, trick or treat. So come watch uh, Coco. <gasps> That's the Halloween movie? It's Coco? Yep. Oh, my God. <laughs> Let me just say Waterworks. When I first saw Coco, I, it was Waterworks and the movie hadn't begun yet. You know how it just shows the Disney castle and it starts to play that da, na, 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 when you wish upon a star, which is by the way from Pinocchio. Um, so they started, they started to play that, but it was mariachi music. You lost it. I lost it. Just tears. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is the dream that was never supposed to happen. Um yeah, I went to, we saw it uh, with Carlos's mom. We went to the, the we found the old, the theater, it's close to us in Whittier, and we saw it in Spanish. I've never even seen the movie in English. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much better in Spanish. I, I mean, it's the same voices. That's what's so amazing about it. It's well, like the first movies where they actually did it with the same character, the same yeah, cast. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but they sound different. 
Um, I don't know yet. I'll fight. I'll tell you about it on uh, tomorrow tonight. They sound different. Let me just tell you. As as and and you know what? I don't know that I've ever noticed this about you, but I my voice goes up higher when I speak Spanish, and it's lower when I speak English. And my assertion has always been that it's because Spanish was my first language, so I was little, right? So I go back to like hello, you know, like it's just I all of a sudden just become like a little kid. I'm like hola, cómo estás? Me llamo Felicia. You know, like all of a sudden I'm just little and 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 i you know i haven't noticed i think you know i think your spanish is actually deeper it's kind of like a you know it gets deeper when you speak spanish. yeah it gets butcher yeah it's very it's very masculine uh, your spanish is <laughs> so i'd be curious if you're like super bilingual all the time like if you if you have any change in your yeah i don't know I guess I could only find that out by like actors. I don't know. I don't know a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, don't ask. I mean, clearly you and I are not going to be able to Weird. answer this. Well, I think it's beautiful that you are watching Coco on Halloween. I was also struck when I saw Coco that um, Miguel from Coco is really just Elliot from E.T. Um, red sweatshirt, painted white face like a ghost, blue jeans, and give him a bicycle. And he's Elliot with the little E.T. on it because that's also takes place during Halloween. That's how they like walk around with E.T. They put, you know, the sheet over E.T. like they're a ghost. So anyways, um, are you going to go dressed like the other los muertos style uh, are you no. gonna go as as miguel are you just going uh, in a red sweatshirt i'm gonna go i i have a frog costume a frog yeah frog well if it's anyone's birthday you could at least go you know sana sana colita de rana oh wow wow <laughs> folks solomon has just put on some of the um outfit notably a headband <laughs> that is the frog's eyes and let me just say it's genius it's genius. It's so good. Like oh, Kermy. I like a flexible costume. I think you should be a frog and I think you should just walk around with a glass that is obviously that you're drinking tea and you should just sip it because then you're the Carmen, the frog drinking, sipping tea meme. It's so good. Priceless. I want that outfit so bad. I'm so mad at you right now. <laughs> I will let you go with one thing. What is your favorite candy? Go. Right now I'm in a junior mint phase. Did you really just say that? Yeah. I had some recently, <laughs> it was so freaking good. I was like, why have I stopped eating junior mints? These are so delicious. Well, again, love <laughs> and loss. So you know, <laughs> be careful, be careful with how deeply you want to love those junior mints because when we go back to complete shutdown and you can't find them at any store, You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human. Stay human.